it's no use to sugarcoat things that the industry is facing an existential crisis, the biggest in its history. On the flip side, being slow to reopen is hopefully not as open-ended as it's felt so far. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined again by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro Magazine, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro Magazine. Welcome. It's good to talk to you guys again. Yeah, we have different combinations here in the podcast. This is one of like the very homey ones. I feel very comfortable <laughs> at, at this point with the three of us. That's nice. Let's just crack out the wine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know what? It's it's almost five o'clock where you guys are. It's It's close enough. Why not? Yeah, this is good. There's been a, I think all of us, there's been some vacation and some travel and family stuff, I think, for everybody here. So we've had different configurations on the podcast over the last couple of weeks. And, and it's nice to be back with the three of us. And movie theaters are opening again, which, you know, we started this podcast in March, just as the coronavirus really took effect in the United States. And now we're at this point where the thing that we have been talking about for literally the entire life cycle of this podcast so far, like our very extended first season, if you want to call it that, has been when will cinemas reopen and what will it be like when they do? This is like almost our season finale, if you want to look at it this way, because we're on the cusp of this. We're going to end with a cliffhanger, maybe like, hey, things are going to are open. Oh, What's going to happen next? And this, is a, this is sweeps week. Yeah. <laughs> This is sweeps week, and the back half of the season will be the real meat when we figure out how it goes. I think going back to like our original production notes as we were plotting out these episodes, like the reopening episode must have been like episode six. We got this, right? (laughs) Yeah, right, right, exactly. And as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, you know, we're not the only country that thought, "Oh, we got this," and then had a second wave and had to close close things down. That's twenty twenty. Get to that in a minute. That's 2020. That's the way this year, this insane, I can't wait for it to be over year goes. But first, okay, let's talk about reopening because we have domestic cinema chains reopening. Well, the top five circuits will soon be able to be giving up data from those reopenings. So we'll be able to see how box office went, how many people showed up. So Rebecca, where do things stand right now? Where, what's the landscape look like? Finally, things are opening. Actually, as of right now, Cineplex, uh, the largest exhibitor in Canada, already has 80% of their theaters open, and they have already started releasing some films, which, uh, which Daniel's going to speak to later. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, August 19th, so um, by the time you're listening to it, we will have 100 AMC theaters open up across the United States with special uh, centennial pricing at 15 cents, because... This is their 100th year. It is also box office's 100th year. I'm contractually obligated to say it's our centennial. Happy birthday, us. Woo. We're also seeing big reopenings in, uh, you know, Cinemark. Cinemark is continuing to open up. Marcus is opening up a third of their theaters. 
two days from now, so in the past for listeners, and then another third on August 28th. Showcase Cinema has announced some reopenings, and uh, Alamo Drafthouse has also announced that they're going to be opening eight of their locations again this weekend, two days from now. So if you're listening to this, uh, you might be able to go pop into an Alamo and go see a movie and eat some queso, depending on where you are. Now, on the less positive uh, side of things here, as we've spoken about on this podcast before, this is quarterly earnings call week where we uh, listen to the earnings calls of of a variety of exhibitors just to kind of find out what's going on with them. And one of those that we've been paying attention to is Writing International. Now, Reading owns and operates theaters in the United States. None of those are opened yet, though they're planning to open a couple theaters in Hawaii soon. And then they are also a top five exhibitor in New Zealand and Australia. Now, New Zealand was one of those countries that it, it seemed like they really had it on lockdown. And, and honestly, they did. They, they did a really good job. New Zealand, they were open, they were able to open their cinemas, certainly, you know, earlier than we were here in the United States. And Reading was able to have nine of their 10 locations in New Zealand open. That 10th was only because of seismic activity. It had nothing to do with COVID. I think they there were concerns that there might be an earthquake. But uh, recently... As if COVID wasn't enough. Right. I'm sorry, New Zealand. Come, Man, you're really doing Coming soon to New Zealand cinemas near you. And coming just, just recently to the capital city of Auckland, a COVID spike. So another Reading Cinema has had to shut down. In Australia, where Reading also operates, there's been a spike in Victoria. So uh, they have to keep seven locations closed uh, through mid-September. Like New Zealand even got to the point where they were not legally mandated to do social distancing in their auditorium. Like they could sell 100%. And now, um, you know, there's another spike. They had to close a theater and uh, and they're back to limited capacity. So, you know, even, even in a country like New Zealand, which had, you know, headlines very early on about how good they were being and handling this, even in that case, there's a backslide. It's not the whole country, you know, at this point, it looks like it's confined to a neighborhood. But, uh, you know, even with them, it's a marathon, not a race situation. And it's going to be like that as we go on. And it's wild because the, the New Zealand outbreak, it's really, it's like 30 people, right? It's, it's, or it's 30 cases. But of course, as we know from the transmissibility and the infection rate of this, that those 30 cases can very easily spiral up into, you know, a hotspot of significantly more. So they have to take those precautions. But is that, I wonder, a preview of what's to come in other places. I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's it's a doom and gloom situation. From what I understand, it's it's very responsible and they took action, you know, before things got worse. You know, over here in the United States, as, as I mentioned, um, all of writing cinemas uh, are still closed. There, there was a little interesting tidbit that they, like many other uh, cinema chains across the United States, have kind of dipped their toes into the virtual theatrical model. And CEO Ellen Cotter admitted, like, didn't make a ton of money on it, which follows what we've been hearing from other exhibitors, you know, that it's more about sort of the intangibles of keeping in touch with your customers than getting a ton of money through the virtual theatrical model. But them trying out virtual theatrical did kind of give them the boost, the knowledge that uh, that they're now using to launch their own streaming platform to be called Angelica Anywhere. 
There's no date yet on, on when they're going to kickstart it. Uh, they say it's going to be this year. But with that, Reading will be the third exhibitor in the United States since COVID has caused the theatrical shutdown to launch their own streaming VOD platforms. That's them, Alamo and Showcase, and AMC. Cineplex in Canada and Cinepolis in Mexico already have their own platforms. So uh yeah, it's another part of the of the Windows conversation is that it is looking like more and more exhibitors in the United States are going to uh, be adding VOD to their repertoire. And it's interesting on, on that note that we're we're seeing exhibitors that aren't large enough to make that investment on their own sort of partner up with other companies uh, and and other entities to create these sort of uh, groups that come together to bring in this sort of VOD technology and facilitate virtual theatrical models during this period. That's the case for a group Fart House exhibitors here in the United States that just came together this week to announce uh, a national cohort of theaters that would show films uh, with this technology. These cinemas that have banded together are all uh, independent uh, art house locations uh, across the country. Uh, They include the Amherst Cinema in Massachusetts, the Austin Film Society in Texas, the Avalon in Washington, D.C., the Chelsea Theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the famous Coolidge Corner Cinema in Brookline, Massachusetts, a personal favorite here for Rebecca and I, the Film Forum in New York City, Filmstream in Omaha, Nebraska, the Grail Movie House in Asheville, North Carolina, the Loft Cinema in Tucson, Arizona, Roxy Theater in San Francisco, California, and the founders of the project, the Salt Lake Film Society in Utah. And that's what I've, what I've been hearing from, from some exhibitors. And, and Daniel, I'm curious if this is what you've been hearing as well, that you know, once people embark on this uh, virtual theatrical model, it's not as difficult tech-wise, perhaps, as they thought it would be. You know, you think building up a VOD platform is a huge nightmarish thing, but it became an issue of, no, actually, we can do this and maybe it gives us opportunities to explore things. Granted, I mean, I think what it's going to come down to after this is an issue of terms and and agreements between exhibitors and distributors as to who gets what money-wise and is that going to change and who's it going to change for the benefit of And that, Rebecca, sounds like yet another part of a bigger issue that we need to tackle in kind of larger context down the road because it connects to the windowing conversation. It connects to the overall shift that we're seeing in the business this year. Uh, It connects to things we've talked about with respect to smaller cinemas responding to AMC and Universal's deal and quite a few other topics here. So, we're going to come back to that in, a, in some point in the not-too-distant future because I think that demands a more full amount of time from us. And in the meantime, though, let's talk about New York and New Jersey. Uh, where are they in the national opening schedule at this point? Uh, well, the biggest story there is that they're not. We're five months into this crisis, and cinemas in New York and New Jersey still don't have a time frame to return to operation. It's uh, been a tense time for exhibitors uh, in the area. We all know of the lawsuit that the National Association of Theater Owners in New Jersey went forward with in the state. For the moment, it seems that that is not going to move forward in having any immediate change. Whereas in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has moved forward with providing an open lane for gyms 
to open indoor operations and even bowling alleys to return to business, but no such luck for cinemas. It's a piece of news that's been very difficult for exhibitors in this region to hear. Guys, I I think we all understand uh, when it comes to these things that public health is is paramount for for everyone. It's one thing if there are uh, orders to close all businesses until further notice, but I think what is making a lot of the exhibition community nervous is that we are in a stage, at least in New York, where things are opening, but there are no objective determinations into what sort of business can open when. It seems to be going down to the whims of the governor and uh, his staff, which causes some inconsistencies, such as uh, such as the policy right now to have indoor dining, to have things like uh, like bowling alleys and like indoor gyms get uh, sort of what is being seen as preferential treatment over exhibitors who, as opposed to gyms and as opposed to bowling alleys, can more easily control uh, crowd disbursement and admissions within their doors. Daniel, I, I do have to say that I, I did note and appreciate your uh, your phrasing on an open lane to open bowling. And yeah, I want you to nice. think that that didn't go appreciated. <laughs> no, we heard that. Yeah. No, but, but it is. I mean, if, if you look at the gym situation, Cuomo gave one date uh, for when gyms could open, and then and then uh, New York City Mayor, uh, you know, Bill De Blasio said, actually, no, for us, it's going to be, it won't be before September second. So you're still seeing that disparity between different levels of government, a lot of confusion in terms of, well, the state says one thing, the city says another thing. The city is, you know, has more COVID cases than the state does. So how do you? Uh, you know, mesh that out. And it's just, uh, there's, yeah, there's really a lack of, a lack of clarity on what needs to happen in order for movie theaters to open. Does it seem likely that over the next couple of weeks, as other regions in the United States get theaters up and running, that after a week or possibly two weeks and seeing how infections go and hopefully seeing that there are not widespread infections as a result of theater attendance. Fingers crossed that that'll be the way it goes. Do you think that that'll have any effect on New York and New Jersey policy? Uh, to be completely honest, I'm, I'm not sure because it, normally I would say that those two metrics are important to, to keep an eye on as we sort of track the reopening effort. What is happening in New York, however, isn't really tied into that reality where you have a number of indoor businesses that using the governor's own words, he and his team deem to be more essential than others during this period. When it comes to an objective analysis to say, well, the infection rates in this area are not conducive to any sort of indoor activity or reopening in general, I think that's one thing. It's a different thing altogether when a team unilaterally decides what and what isn't in a time frame to reopen, regardless of the infection rates in a specific district or state. And then you have the flip side of that, too. I mean, you ask if theaters opening goes well in in one area, does that bode well for areas maybe like like New York or like California where a date has not been set? I mean, look at the flip side of that. Schools are reopening. What are we going to see in terms of numbers elsewhere in the country and how is that going to affect theaters there? I mean, I, I think that's a huge could potentially, you know, have, have, have a big impact on businesses being allowed to open, maybe businesses having to close back up again. I mean, the schools thing is that that could go bad. And it has gone bad in a few places already in Georgia and, you know, some other states. 
And I think it's also important to to find silver linings in in even the news that that we find the most difficult uh, during during this point. It's it's no use to sugarcoat things. The, the industry is facing an existential crisis, the biggest in its history. On the flip side, being slow to reopen is hopefully not as open ended as it's felt so far. So gyms didn't have a time frame to reopen in in New York State when the governor provided them a reopening date it was with a 10 days heads up. So really it was a week and a half to give them then the green light to return to operations. So even when we do have this uh, move forward ability, we're seeing that it's not this uh, longer sort of period for, for that to occur. Another factor is you had brought up, Rebecca, I, I think the bigger threat we have to start considering is the potential, and no one wants to see this happen, but the potential of a uh, second shutdown of cinemas in any given region. Now, most regions uh, can somewhat stomach that, but the number one film market in the United States is going to feel that much more acutely if it does open and then is forced to close in the interim. I mean, that'll have a huge impact on the studio scheduling of films down the line. I mean, that, that that's going to have a huge ripple effect if they open prematurely. In other areas, uh, you know, Canada, their number one exhibitor, Cineplex, is open 80%. And and in that and and other nations that have had, you know, more open theaters up to this point, Daniel, are, we're actually seeing some, some fairly encouraging box office reports. Nothing close to pre-pandemic levels, but we are seeing a slow and steady progress in terms of location counts. And I think that's going to be one of the main indicators to keep an eye out for when we can't really trust uh, the success of a film based on opening weekends. It's going to be how many screens is it playing on? In Canada last weekend, uh, that is the week of August 14th to the 16th from the date of recording, we had three titles uh, open in around 300 locations across Canada. Domestic title from Quebec, uh, along with two major studio productions, uh, one of them being the Russell Crowe vehicle Unhinged from Solstice Studios, and the other being Paramount's SpongeBob. I don't know what which a sponge. Is it a sponge out of water? Is it a sponge on the run? Yes. Which which sponge, sponge is this? Run. This sponge it's is running. Sponge on the run. Actually, sponge on the run. Let's just yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's do that yeah. one again in in the world of uh, movie titles that uh, sort of get lost in in the crowd there. Now uh, that title is definitely going to be lost in the rush here in the U.S. because it hit PVOD instead of a theatrical release. So it's only going to be hitting, as far as we know, in a significant level theaters internationally and in Canada. Little by little, we're seeing those grosses come in. Uh, SpongeBob did, I wouldn't say great, but the numbers there uh, weren't critical. You had around $900,000 from those 300 locations. Uh, So to give you a sort of comparison, that comes in around the third or fourth weekend of the previous SpongeBob movie in terms of per screen average and performance. So it's, it's not anywhere near the expectations we had for the title, but it's chugging along. Elsewhere, internationally, we have a couple of anomalies seeing that uh, some markets are open but are waiting for new Hollywood titles. That is the case in China, where a movie from 2001 opened with $13.6 million. I'm not even going to guess the title of this Harry Potter entry. Uh, Rebecca, I think you're our resident Harry Potter expert. Which one of the Harry Potters is this one? What's the subtitle here? 
I believe that was Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone in the UK market. Oh, you and get that your choice. The, it's one that's or the, other. the first one. That was the very first. So I, I actually have a, a horrible confession here. I've never seen a single one of those Harry Potter movies. They're There's fine. only one of them that's good. Is it the Mexican one? So, is it the one the Mexican? It is. Dude, that's good. <laughs> Wonderful. Yep. Representing us. Uh, and and also the Deathly Hallows part one is pretty good because it's like kind of a road movie. There's the part where they dance to a Nick Cave song in the middle of that movie. Like, what what's that about? Oh, God. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now my question is, you know, I've seen reporting on that Harry Potter Chinese release in the trades. They refer to it as a re-release. Do you guys know if this is actually the first time that a lot of Chinese audiences have had an opportunity to see that movie theatrically? Or is this a movie that's been, you know, done circuit in China in, in the past? So, as you know, the Chinese market has grown considerably since the release of this film in 2001, rising quickly to becoming a quickly growing market, the number two in the world. From the box office data that we have spanning this this whole time, we don't have box office data from China on any sort of wide release on this title. If it had played, uh, it wasn't done so at a scale commercially that would be significant. So it seems like this is the first opportunity that a wide audience in China has had to see this movie, the first chapter in a beloved franchise, on the big screen. And related to that situation, we have another market like Saudi Arabia that just recently welcomed cinemas back uh, for decades, uh, not too long ago, I believe it was two or three years ago when cinemas uh, were once again welcome into Saudi Arabia. We had a another re-release from Warner Brothers, Inception, open up in that market. Just in 15 screens, guys, that movie ended up making $186,000. So from a very limited basis, this is another title that has been in the archives for a major studio, hadn't played in a market. And because of the situation, it's created an opportunity where audiences can see this type of movie on the big screen for the first time. Oh man, I'm jealous. I want to see see my some of my favorite movies on the big screen for the first time again. Minus <laughs> minus the global pandemic situation, obviously. Just in general, just overall. Yeah. And yeah, that would be nice. Capping off the the sort of uh, box office data that we got from last weekend, um, as we were saying, it's it's been some interesting sort of highlights market by market, but there are two very positive stories that emerged last weekend at the international box office. We have the example of uh, STX's Greenland, a new release that was set for one of those uh, early return to cinema slots here in the United States that got pushed back a little bit, but was put into the release internationally since theaters there were already open. Uh, That title, according to STX, is performing well above its pre-pandemic expectations in France. Uh, The film there has now grossed a total of 4.55 million in the French market. And that is uh, significant because if you look at other titles like Greenland, such as uh, Geostorm, Angel Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, uh, or Olympus Has Fallen, or what we can call uh, the Gerard Butler Greatest Hits. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) This title, Greenland, is performing well above the theatrical run pre-pandemic of those titles in France. It's an example of a film that probably wouldn't have had as much success with a full schedule of titles out there. But for example, guys, right now, Greenland is 31% ahead 
of where Olympus has fallen was in the French box office at the same time. So was France just carrying a lot of bitterness and disdain for Gerard Butler for his turn as the Phantom of the Opera, and they're just now <laughs> getting over it? You know what? I think our colleagues at uh, Cahiers du Cinéma have had a, a rough go lately, but this might be one of those like post-World War II, all of these movies come back into the market situation, where Gerard Butler might be our new Alfred Hitchcock. I'm just l- waiting for that new like Truffaut-Hitchcock <laughs> equivalent uh, with Gerard Butler. He deserves that. Good for him. <laughs> it's, you know, I, it's weird because his Phantom of the Opera is a movie that for some reason has come up in like six different conversations I've had over the past week. People keep I don't know why. It. Well, I guess it's in part, it's it's the death of Joel Schumacher who made the movie. And I, I don't know, there's some other things. There, there was a, a video of Patrick Wilson uh, rehearsing for that movie that went around in like one social media circle that I follow. And it's a great video because he just nails it and he nails it with like seemingly not even trying. It's it's kind of terrific. But yeah, it's just weird that that movie out of all the movies that could possibly come up right now is sort of bubbling into the conversation. I hate to say it. I, I don't remember that ever coming out. Again, you could you that could show up at like the CinemaCon presentation in 2022 and I'd be like, wow, when's that coming out? The movie got the movie caught some hell at the time, for me included, to be honest, about the fact that um, like Minnie Driver, they gave her like they dubbed her. They it wasn't her doing the singing because the character's a freaking opera singer, and I right. was disdainful of that. And now I'm like, you know, I saw I saw Russell Crowe in Les Misérables. I think oh. we should do more dubbing in musical. Oh man, musicals. yeah, Tom Hooper <laughs> has uh, reaffirmed a lot of old Hollywood techniques in the musical. Yeah, uh, in the last three three five years alone. Uh, between Les Mis and Cats. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I, I think one of the other aspects that we were talking about, the international market, uh, a couple of weeks back as we started tracking the, the European reopening, was the role that domestic titles would have in the market, right? Uh, you have markets that are waiting for Hollywood titles to come in. Is this the right time for a domestic title to become a hit? That's actually been the case in Spain, which has had a little bit of a roller coaster ride with COVID cases recently. As we know, it was one of the early European markets to be devastated by the pandemic. It uh, recovered uh, decently well, uh, well enough to allow Real Madrid to win its first uh, La Liga championship in years, thank God. And now we have a situation where a popular comedy sequel has hit the market, Padre No Hay Más Que Uno Dos, has uh, opened uh, in that market and has now grossed uh, a total of $8.4 million. And that is already $800,000 ahead of where its predecessor was at the same point in release. So we're seeing a situation where a domestic title is coming out in a market that has been heavily affected not only by COVID, but by a resurgence of cases in recent weeks, and has still been able to outperform a direct comp during this span. So this doesn't mean that uh, cinema's back. It doesn't mean that uh, we're all where we used to be, but it, they are very positive indicators from these markets that the business can sustain itself even after being ravaged by the pandemic. And so when that kind of connects to something else that we've talked to over the past uh, weeks and months is the idea of communicating 
to audiences that they can go back to the movies now uh, and trying to entice audiences back to the movies. Now, I know in the US, the UK, and a number of other territories, there are some new audience engagement campaigns that are kicking off between now and the next week or two. Rebecca, can you give us kind of a quick rundown of what we're going to be seeing uh, in different countries? Indeed. You know, as, as we've seen, the reopening of theaters has been gradual. The release of films has been gradual. And, and so, too, have these audience engagement campaigns. It's, it's really been more of a marathon and not a race. Uh, there are early campaigns uh, that we've spoken about on the podcast before, like Movies Together, like uh, the French campaign, On ira to au cinema. I don't speak French, so apologies uh, to my French colleagues on the pronunciation there. Uh, and those campaigns were very geared towards encouraging people to remember the movies, to remember the enthusiasm and the love that they feel for the movies. And since then, we have seen uh, other campaigns pop up. Uh, of course, there's the Pioneers Assistance Fund uh, from Will Rogers and Art House America, which are both campaigns geared specifically towards getting money to people who have been adversely affected uh, by the furlough. We have uh, NATO's own uh, engagement campaign, Save Your Cinema. And unlike the previous uh, Return to Cinema campaigns, this one is geared directly towards inviting and encouraging people to reach out to their congresspeople in support of movie theaters. Uh, we've spoken to NATO, and as of August 14, there have been 288,000 letters sent uh, by 95,000-plus people. Every single congressional office has gotten letters in support of, of movie theaters, which, which I think is really great. Tomorrow, that would be uh, Thursday, August 20th, we are seeing a UK campaign launch called Love Cinema, created by uh, the UKCA and the DDA, trade groups representing exhibitors and distributors in the UK. And as we said, that's that's something that's launching tomorrow, and, and we're going to be speaking, speaking to that uh, more later on. One of the campaigns that I found really interesting, actually, was one that, that took place in Japan. Daniel, something that you were you were saying about local productions really kind of relates to this because uh, there are in Japan somewhere between probably like 150, 200, they call them mini theaters. They are independent theaters that aren't really affiliated with any of the major chains or the major studios. And due to a, a real lack of uh, government support, they were really, uh, they found themselves in a difficult situation financially when they were forced to shut down. Something that I thought was really interesting is that in 2019, about half the films that came out in Japan only screened in those, in those mini theaters. So they're they're an essential part of the the diversity of, of of the the ecosystem of theatrical exhibition in Japan. So two famous art house directors in Japan uh, joined a group to launch this mini theater aid crowdfunding campaign that uh, ultimately earned over three million uh, American dollars to help these independent cinemas uh, in Japan. And, and, and actually, I was speaking to one of the co-founders, and he was saying that these mini theaters, it's almost like there's too much local content. You know, there are all these mini theaters where they're the only place to screen these movies. And now there's just a lot of content that are trying to get into these theaters. But the issue is is having the money to, to stay open. So 
you know, it, it is heartening that uh, both in the United States and overseas, we're seeing people, uh, you know, donate money. We're seeing people reach out to their government representatives uh, to, to hopefully get these theaters money that they desperately need. Because, you know, as we've spoken about before, this isn't going to be an issue of, uh, oh, tenant comes out and everything's back to normal. This is This is going to be a a slow, gradual process of recovery. And um, these campaigns are, are going to continue to be essential in the coming months, for sure. Guys, it's great to do this with you again. Uh, let's do it again next week. Thanks. Yeah, maybe, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written by Daniel Luria and Rebecca Polly and narrated by Daniel, Rebecca, and me, Russ Fisher. Join us again next week when we will have even more box office and theater reopening data and subjects and anecdotes to share and talk about. See you then. Thanks. <laughs>